Thanks for listening to this week's sermon from Epicos Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. For more information about Epicos, please visit epicos.org. Good morning. Hey, I'm Frank. I'm the Mayfair Road Campus Pastor. I'm also one of your pastors, and I'm glad to be here today. Hey, we are starting a brand new series in the book of Colossians, and I have a lot I want to share with you as we set up this new series in Colossians, but I want to do something real quick on all of our campuses that we haven't done in a while, and, and I just think it just feels right to start off this way. So what I want everyone to do, in here at West Dallas, at whatever campus that you're, 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 you're watching this in, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to make eye contact in a second. I'm going to let you know when to do this. I want you to make eye contact with three people in the space you're in that you didn't come with, and I want you to, to greet them, to say hi to them, but also... Introduce yourself. Tell them your name. So hard eye contact, three people. Introduce yourself, say your name. Ready, set, go. All right. Cool, cool. I said three people. Some of y'all are a little overzealous. So uh, let's find our seats. And as you're finding your seat, I, I want to point us to the study guides. If you haven't gotten one, I highly, highly encourage you to go pick one up. They're $5. I want to give you three reasons why you want to get this study guide. Okay, first off, immaculate printing. I mean, the cardstock on this cover, great soft cover, not too glossy. Printing is great, good font choices. That alone is a good reason to get this book, okay? Second reason is this. It helps you take this sermon beyond Sunday morning. I guarantee you, sometime after the Sunday morning sermon, if you go week by week in this study guide to answer the questions, think through the application questions in this book, it will take this sermon beyond the hour you are here with us on Sunday morning into your week and you will grow because of it. And also, if you're, a, if you're in a small group, this is the content of the curriculum that your small group is going through. And then the third reason why you want to get this book is that it is written by Epicos, to Epicos, for Epicos. This isn't some curriculum that we purchase from some publisher in a different state. This is every single series we do, we gather people from Epicos to write these questions from different campuses to think through what exactly does our people at each campus at Epicos need so it's the most relevant and the most applicable to you. So this is a book for you and to you. So you should get it. It's five dollars, all right? Subway doesn't even sell their subs anymore for five dollars, all right? We are still selling these books for five dollars. Go get your book. Whether you are in person, you can get in the lobby, you can uh, pay with cash or card, or uh, if you're watching this and you're at home, you can even order this online, and I think we will even ship it to you, all right? So go get this book. It's five dollars, all right? So we're starting a new book of the Bible, and whenever you open to a new, new book of the Bible, you have to remind yourself of this statement, all right? The statement is this. The book, whatever you're reading, cannot mean to us what it didn't mean to them. Whenever you read the Bible, remind yourself that the book that you're reading cannot mean to us what it didn't mean to them. So every New Testament letter is written uh, uh, for us, but it's written to a specific people in a specific time and a specific place. So, so if you want to get the most of your Bible reading, you must interpret everything based on its context and the author's intent. And so when you ask the question, what does this Bible verse mean to me? 
when you do the study of understanding the context and the intent, it will put the passage in its proper lens so we can understand what the actual passage actually does mean to you. And so today, we're going to talk about the three A's of Colossians. The author, the audience, and the aim. The author, the audience, and the aim. And I think when we understand what, how to answer those three things of Colossians, it will set us up well for the next 19 weeks as we're in this book, studying it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And I believe we'll get a lot out of it when we, when we understand this, all right? So let's begin with the author. Who is the author of Colossians? We're gonna start in verse one of chapter one in the book of Colossians. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. So uh, very quickly, Paul introduces himself and his ministry associate, Timothy. And, and what we know is that Paul wrote this around the early part, like somewhere between 60 and 62 AD, while he was in prison in Rome. And we also know that in that same time period, he wrote the letter to the Ephesians, to the Philippians, and also to Philemon. And so our passage begins by saying that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus. So let's answer that out of the gate. What is an apostle? Well, the, de- the word apostle literally means one who is sent. That's what the word apostle means, one who is sent. But more specifically, when we ask ourselves, what, the, what are the qualifications for an apostle? Can, apostle? can there be an apostle today? What does it mean to be an apostle in our understanding as Christians? There are two biblical qualifications for an apostle. The first qualification is an apostle had to have been an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus. That's the first qualification of an apostle. The second qualification is that an apostle is someone who was instructed or commissioned specifically by Jesus. So eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus and was commissioned by the resurrected Jesus. So based on those two qualifications, I have no conflict in saying there are no apostles today. People can have apostolic giftings, as in they're really good at starting from nothing, starting big things for Jesus. I think church planners have apostolic giftings, but there are no biblical evidence that justifies that there are, the role of apostle is today. The role of apostle was needed to lay the foundation of the church, and the foundation only needed to be laid once. As we read through the Bible after the book of Acts, there's no examples of new apostles showing up. And as we look in church history, there are no examples of apostles showing up. So Paul leads with the fact that he is an apostle because with it carries this unique type of authority to speak to this church. So what makes Colossians a little bit different than all of other Paul's letters is that Paul has never been to Colossae. He's never, he didn't start this church. He's never been to this church. He's only heard about this church. People have spoken to him about this church, but he's never been there. He didn't start it. But he has heard about how awesome the people are there. And he has empathy. He has compassion for the plight, the problem that they're facing in this church. And so Paul is being, Paul, Paul being an apostle gives him the credentials. It gives him the right to speak to a church that he's never been to. This passage says that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, this feels small, but I think it's important because it's going to set up stuff later in the book. But I want you to hear me closely when I say this, because some of you, this might be the first time you've ever heard this before. The word Christ is not Jesus' last name. All right? 
This might, I know there's people who are like, I thought that was his last name. I thought his daddy was Mr. Christ. No, no, no. No, Jesus' last name is not Christ. The, the, the word Christ in Greek means the anointed one, which would also mean like he's Jesus, the consecrated one, the chosen one, or the set apart one. In Hebrew, the word Christ means the Messiah, which is the long-awaited, promised Savior for God's people. So when you read the word Jesus Christ, your mind should interpret this as Jesus, the anointed one, or Jesus, the Messiah. So Paul is establishing his authority as an apostle is rooted in the Messiahship of Jesus, the anointedness of Jesus. So when you read in your Bibles throughout the New Testament, when you see Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus or just the word Christ, I want you to like mentally substitute the word Christ for the Messiah or the anointed one. Because when you do that, when you read your Bible again, what you realize is that when the author says Jesus Christ, he's saying much more than just Jesus' name. He's saying Jesus' name and Jesus' title as the Messiah, as the anointed one. So... The author, who's Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, is writing to a church he's never been to, but because he is an apostle of Christ Jesus, he has the credentials to speak to them. And like Colossae, you and I have never met Paul before. And so my question for you is this. Is Paul the apostle qualified to challenge you? Is he credentialed enough to cause you to question your theology and to question your worldview? Are you willing to sit under his teaching and let, and let his teaching oppose you rather than you oppose him? Because if you're not, you're not gonna get much out of this 19-week series. But if you're willing to sit under Paul's words, it will change you and it will challenge you. All right? So the author is Paul the Apostle. The next is the audience. Who is the audience that Paul is writing to. We find that in the first part of verse two. It says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. So if you have your study guide, open to page 94 and you'll see a really neat map. If you didn't bring your study guide, I think we have it on the screen too. But in this map, it will show you where Colossae is compared to the other kind of biblical cities in the New Testament. And one thing you'll see pretty quickly is that it is about 100 miles inland. It's 100 miles east of the big port city of Ephesus where Paul did a lot of ministry and for a number of years. And, and so Colossae was this ethnically and religiously diverse city where Jews and Gentiles coexisted. But the Christians struggled as they tried to navigate what it means to follow Jesus in this pluralistic society, in a society with multiple worldviews and philosophies and ideas of what truth is. And, and, and so I said earlier that Paul did not start this church, but as we keep reading Colossae, Colossians, we'll read that a man named Epaphras is the one who started this church. And Epaphras loved this church in Colossae. He was a local in the city. And when Paul was imprisoned in Rome, Epaphras was so burdened by the problem happening in his church that he went, he did the 1100 mile journey to Rome to seek his help to help his church. Now think about that for a second. This is before cars and planes. Paul, I'm sorry, Epaphras walked 1,100 miles 
from Colossae to Rome because he wanted the help of an apostle because he loved his church so much. So who are these people that a pastor is willing to, draw, to walk 1,100 miles for because he cares about their souls so much? Well, the passage says that they are saints and faithful brothers in Christ. Now, I love the ESV. It's my favorite translation. Come talk to me later. I'll tell you why the ESV is probably my favorite translation of all the Bible translations. But there's sometimes other translations of the Bible have a better wording. And in this case, the NIV, I think, has a much better wording of this passage. So in the NIV, the New International Version, it says, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. And so what I love about the NIV is that it conveys what Paul is saying a little bit better here. In the Greek, the word brother here is probably better translated as siblings. And so the NIV chooses to translate that phrase as brothers and sisters to show that this letter is not just for the men in Colossae, but it's for all the people in Colossae, for both men and women. And I also like the NIV translation because in the ESV, it says the word saints. And depending on your church background, you might have some different understanding of what the word saints mean as opposed to what Paul is trying to say here. If you grew up Catholic, the word saint might put images of your mind of like super Christians who are in heaven that did heroic things and lived super holy lives. But the word saint in the Bible simply means holy. And, and, and the word holy means set apart. So Paul refers to the church in Colossae as holy and faithful in Christ. And that word in Christ is like the most important part of that line. Because what makes this church holy and faithful, what makes these people saints is not by how awesome they are or how heroic they are or how amazing they are, but it's because of whom they are in. To be in Christ means to have a relationship with Jesus. To, to be in Christ means that what is true about Jesus is true about you. So Jesus is holy and faithful. Therefore, you are positionally holy and faithful. Being in Christ means that your identity is intrinsically tied to who Jesus is and what he's done for you. And if you are here and you are a Christian, then you are in Christ. And therefore, to God, you are holy and faithful. If you are in Christian and you are in Christ, you, right now, are a saint, and, and so I think when Paul is calling the church faithful saints, it's because he wants them to not only understand their position in Jesus, but he also wants them to live into that title. And as we go on to Colossians, we're gonna see Paul encourage them to live as saints in Colossae. We'll talk more about that in chapter three. But, but this is all about union with Jesus because your connection to Jesus is the most important thing about you. So let's talk about the problem in the church of Colossae. This is what scholars call the Colossian heresy. And the Colossian heresy that's infecting the church is a mix of Greek mysticism and Jewish legalism. And so in chapter two, it really gets into the nuts and bolts of what this heresy is. But the heresy ultimately reduces Jesus to be one of the many in the pantheon of Greek gods. And what it also does is it encourages people to follow strict Jewish rules when it comes to circumcision, eating certain foods, and celebrating certain holidays. The crux of the Colossian heresy is that it minimizes the importance of Jesus and it elevates more rules and rituals in your life. 
It is saying that Jesus is not enough and that you need to add to who Jesus is and what he's done in order to truly be a good Christian. Another word for this that I think is a better word for all this is the word syncretism. Say, I want, on three, I want you to say the word syncretism. One, two, three, syncretism, syncretism. Syncretism is the blending together of different philosophies, religions, and ideas. It's the blending together of those things. And this church was being persuaded by the syncretism of that day. But friends, this wasn't just an issue back then. This is an issue today. An example of syncretism that's personal to me is my own family who's from Cuba. A popular religion is called Santaria. And Santaria, the best way I can describe Santaria is it's a mixture of voodoo witchcraft and Roman Catholicism mixed together. That's an example of secretism. In America, an example of secretism that we see is the Unitarian Universalists or the Unitarian Universalist Church, which, which incorporates all kinds of other religions from around the world, even non-religious uh, traditions together in their, if you want to call it their church, as their practice of their faith. But uh, this syncretism is more than just blending multiple religions. It's also blending multiple worldviews and ideas. And I think this is where we're very susceptible to this. There's sneaky syncretism that happens in the church today. And I want to give you, tell you about those three examples. One of them is consumerism. We live in a society that is obsessed with the pursuit of luxury, wealth, and comfort. And we are fine with working 60 hours a week, hustling to achieve all that we want to feel comfortable and, and get our desires and our needs and our wants by any means necessary. And so this shows up in the church in the form of what is called the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel. It's the belief that when you put your faith in Jesus, all your bills will get paid, all your ailments will get healed, and you will never be poor or sick again. Basically, whatever you want, you can speak it into existence and it is yours because you deserve it because you made the right decision to follow Jesus. And if it's not happening in your life, you gotta have more faith. It believes that when you put your faith in Jesus, life should be easier. So pastors come on stage with really nice watches and shoes and suits, and they tell you, sow a seed of faith. And if you do, you'll never be sick again. You'll be rich and you'll get all of your desires of your heart. I would be lying to tell you if that this, this kind of syncretism doesn't creep in my heart sometimes. As some of you guys know, me and my wife have been struggling with infertility for a number of years now. And as I've been getting older in my age without a child, sometimes there's this bitterness that creeps up in my heart because I see people who have children who don't even want their children. And I think to myself, how is it fair that they get to have kids and don't even want them? And I'm the one working for Jesus. Like I'm the one at the church doing the thing for God. And how come God hasn't given me a kid? And I have this subtle resentment that kind of believes that God is withholding from me. This is my heart wanting to synchronize this, this warped belief of the prosperity gospel thing that God owes me something because I've been so faithful to him. God owes me nothing. By his son alone, Jesus Christ dying on the cross for my sins is more than I ever deserve. Everything else is a gift. So this twisted view of God is even tempting to me and it's probably tempting to you. He isn't withholding from you. You see why syncretism is already bad? Let me give you another example. Individualism. We live in a country that lives on the whims of our own personal feelings. If something offends you, you're not only encouraged to voice your opinion, but people who have a different opinion should be silenced. 
We are in a culture that says you should have what you want, when you want, and how you want it, and no one should tell you otherwise. This individualism speaks into our understanding of gender identity, abortion, marriage, and all the hot topics that make people really uncomfortable right now, right? And, and, and so we have reduced Christianity to just Jesus and me. And so if we, don't, if we don't like our small groups, we just stop showing up. If we don't like the music, well, we'll show up late to church. If we don't like the, sh- the sermon, I'll leave early from church. Or if we don't like the church, I'll just go to another church. Or I'll just stop going to church altogether. The church ought to cater to exactly how I want it. And if I don't like it, I'll go somewhere else. This is why we live in a world full of people who claim to be Christian, but are not connected to any church at all. And one of the unforeseen circumstances or consequences of this individualism in our society and in the church is this feeling of isolationism, of being isolated. This is why for some of us, our entire lives are on the internet and through social media, but we struggle to have meaningful face-to-face relationships. Ever since 2020, when COVID hit, I would say a good portion of my pastoral care meetings are with people who feel lonely and isolated. And they feel just very alone right now. This individualism, this me, myself, and I attitude is not serving any of us well. Let me give you one more example of how the the sneaky syncretism shows up in our life. And that is through nationalism. Nationalism. We conflate and blend our partisan political ideology into our worship and faith. We, we blend our identity as Americans with our identity as Christians. And so we have placed our allegiance to a flag and a country or even a political party over Jesus as king. And so this is seen both on the left and on the right. Christians have somehow taken a faith that began by a Palestinian Jew in the Middle East, which grew and spread first in Africa and in Asia and somehow believed that the American expression of Christianity is the only good and right expression of it. I've said this before. I am grateful to be an American. My mom and dad left Cuba. They left socialism to have a better life in this country. And the moment I was born on this land, I was afforded more opportunities than I could ever have than if I was born in Cuba. But with that said, my allegiance is first and foremost to King Jesus and his kingdom. And as a Christian, that should not be a controversial take. Yeah, I know whenever a pastor talks about politics from the stage, it feels like I have to thread a needle because it's such a hot topic in the church. What syncretism ultimately is, is you picking and choosing what you want to believe because you are at the center of your belief system. And Jesus, if he's in your life, must orbit your belief system and submit to your wants and desires. Secretism is making you at the center of your entire life. So do you see why we need the book of Colossians yet? If not, I have one more point, so hang in there. The last thing we're gonna talk about is the aim the aim of the book, the aim of Colossians. Let's read the last part of verse two. He says, grace to you and peace from God, our father. Grace is, is getting the opposite of what you deserve. I like that definition because I came up with it. Grace is getting the opposite of what you deserve. If Ephesians says that we are saved by grace through faith. 
Instead of getting the punishment we deserve because of sin, we receive his grace. We receive his goodness, his kindness, and his love that belongs to Jesus. He gives that to us. But also his grace motivates us to live holy lives, lives that honor the Lord. That's grace. But peace comes from the Hebrew word shalom. And that word means completeness, soundness, welfare, and wholeness. We first, find, we first have peace with God because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. We, have, we now have no more hostility between us and God because our sins have been paid for on the cross. But Philippians 4, 7 tells us that we can also have a peace that surpasses all understanding. So in a world full of chaos and anxiety, Christians can have access to a type of peace that makes no sense in this world. We don't earn this grace and peace. We are recipients of it from God, our Father. So my question to you is, do you have peace in your life? Maybe a better way of asking that question is, do you want peace in your life? Because peace comes from our Father in heaven, but it flows from the grace we receive through Jesus Christ. So maybe an even better question to ask you is, have you received that grace? In this little greeting, Paul is using words intentionally that will be played out more clearly later in the book. But what Paul wants to tell these brothers and sisters in Christ is to keep Jesus at the center of their lives. If you want grace and peace, put Jesus at the center of your life. This book of Colossians is all about the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus and the syncretism that is happening in this church desires to minimize Jesus and make him insane sufficient in your life. It's trying to make him say that you need more than just Jesus to make it out of this life. And Paul is trying to show them that Jesus is not something that you just add to your life. Jesus is not new downloadable content to improve your life. He's not an accessory and he's not an addition to what you already got going on. Jesus must be preeminent in your life and he must be the center of our lives where everything flows from Jesus and everything submits to Jesus. Let me explain it like this. A lot of our lives look like this wheel, a, a, a wheel the wheel of our lives. I think I have a graphic for you to see here. It's, it's a wheel. And in this graphic, what you see is that we are in the middle. We, we have placed ourselves in the middle of this graphic and everything else flows from who we are. Our love life, our family, our careers, our finances, our health, all that stuff flows from us being in the middle of our life. And we are trying to determine our own identity based on our own desires. So we look at these different slices and figure out what we want and who we want to be. Now let's say in your life, you discover Jesus. And so you think, I want to add Jesus to improve my life. So you start coming to church and you start maybe doing different Christian habits and practices. But the problem is Jesus didn't come to improve your life. Jesus came to give you a new life. And so our wheel has to completely transform and be different. What it has to be is that Jesus has to be in the middle of your life and everything flows from it. And you might say, Frank, I don't understand though. This is my life. Why am I just a slice of my life that's in this wheel? Well, that's because Jesus calls us to lay down our lives to him. It's to take up our cross and follow the lamb wherever he goes. And that means that even our own identity must flow from who 
Jesus is and what he declares us to be. Jesus is the creator and we are created in his image and therefore our lives ought to submit to who he is and what he's done. Jesus must be the center of our lives and everything ripples out from it. You are hidden in Jesus and everything must be filtered through who Jesus is and what he's done. This is what we're gonna do for the next 19 weeks. We're, we're going to go chapter by chapter, verse by verse through Colossians to know what it means for Jesus to be the center of our lives. And if you're a Christian, if you are in Christ, here's the very first way I want you to work on making Jesus the center of your life. In these two verses, Paul calls Timothy his brother and he refers to the church of Colossae as brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you are in Christ, you have been adopted into his family. Paul is already trying to go against the notion of individualism and that, that, that we want to synchronize into our faith because he says, you are not doing this on your own. You are grafted into a larger family. For those of you who are in Christ, we are to call each other brothers and sisters because we are connected to the spiritual family through our heavenly father who is in heaven. Earlier in the service, I encouraged you to greet the person next to you. And I wasn't trying to stall for time. I, wasn't, I, I did that on purpose. I wanted you to know the names of the people around you because the people who are next to you are not just random individuals that you happen to share a space with. But the people right next to you right now are your brothers and sisters bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. When, when you are the center of your life, you don't have to look at anybody, not even your own family as brothers and sisters, because everyone in your life is just a means to an end of what you're trying to accomplish in your life. Who is gonna help me become the better me? But if Jesus is the center of your life, what flows from that is the way you see the people around you. The people around you right now are not a means to an end for your improvement. They are your brothers and sisters in Christ and we all have a part to play in each other's lives. Your kids right now are upstairs or in the downstairs, depending on what campus you're at, learning together about Jesus. We sing songs with one another. We take communion with one another. We serve with one another. We are not just people who happen to share the same space on Sunday morning. We were made for a type of community that feels like family. And so Paul can write to a church that he's never met before because these are his brothers and sisters. And Paul knows how to write to family. And that's why he can write to us because Paul is family to us as well. Seeing the people around you as brothers and sisters and not merely strangers should change how you think about them. Who, who have you uh, seen at your campus, at your service for a long time and you know their face, but you don't know their name? I wanna encourage you today, go up to that person and say, hey, I've seen you for a while. This is very uncomfortable, but Frank gave me permission to say, hi, this is who I am. What's your name? Meet that person. Or is the reason why you're at the service you're in right now is because you're avoiding someone else who goes to a different service or a different campus because there's something that hasn't been reconciled yet. If you truly see people as brothers and sisters in Christ, who do you need to reconcile with? Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to love like a brother and sister in Christ? When Jesus is at the center of your life, it changes how we see the Christians around us. So I want you to do this. In your study guide, I want you to write down this question or in your phone or on a piece of paper. I want you to write down this question and I want you to answer it this week. And if you're in a small group, I want you to bring up this question in your small group and answer this question in your group. Here's the question I want everyone to write down. 
How would seeing other Christians as my brothers and sisters change the way I interact with them? How would seeing other Christians as my brothers and sisters change the way I would interact with them? How does this change the way you see your small group? How does this change the way you think about serving in your church? How does this change the way you look at worshiping with one another or even giving to the church? How does seeing the people around you as brothers and sisters in Christ change how you see the person sitting next to you right now? Well, saints, I'm really looking forward to Colossians. I think there's a lot of very practical stuff to learn here. I think we're on, we're on for an awesome ride. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're good to us because you've given us your word. You, you, you didn't leave us here to, to not know how you want us to live, how you want us to understand our faith, and how you want us to understand who you are. So you've given us your holy word so that we can know you and follow you better. And Lord, we thank you for the book of Colossians. In the same way like the church of Colossae, we've never met Paul in person, but he's our big brother. And the church of Colossae are our older brothers and sisters and we can learn from them and we can learn from Paul. And more importantly, we can learn from one another in this room as well. I just pray, Lord, that as we go through the book of Colossians, that you encourage us where we need to be encouraged, you challenge us where we need to be challenged, and that every single week as we gather as the, your saints, your brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, I pray, Lord, that as we come together, when we leave this place after hearing your word and worshiping with one another, we conformed a little more to the image of our big brother, Jesus Christ. Be with us. We love you and we praise you. In your son's name I pray. Amen.